citizens. Welcome to Stuff We've Seen, a holiday edition. <laughs> this is Jim. <laughs> With me is Teal, and this is our last episode of the year 2023. Wow. And it it's not really a holiday edition, though. I, I, I don't want to... I don't want to do false advertising here. This is not an episode on Hallmark movies, on Christmas movies, on holiday movies. I think there's one movie that we're going to talk about that takes place at Christmas, but this is definitely not a holiday episode. Well, no, it, it's it's holiday in so much as uh, <laughs> it, this episode will probably air around uh, the holidays. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. <laughs> yeah, and this is the last episode we're going to give you that you can enjoy through the holidays. Exactly. So th- consider this a holiday gift. Yeah, but we're giving each other holiday gifts in 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 the idea of movies that we have asked each other to see. That, yes, that's sort of it. But we're going to get to that in a little bit. Um, so, <laughs> uh, and again, I you know to talk about bad prep. I'm just going to ask you on this yeah. one because if you haven't, well, we're not going to spend much time. But uh, I got to see. Uh, the Netflix offering May December by director Todd Haynes. Did you get to watch that? I did not see it yet. So you lose, you loser. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been great to talk about on the show. Uh, well, you can talk about it a little bit. Uh, I'm just going to say a couple things. A, I enjoyed it. I didn't like love, love, love it. I thought it was pretty good. It was shot in like a 16 millimeter. Uh, looks really nice. Uh, the director of cinematography, Christopher. Blue Velt uh, does a lot of what Kelly Reichardt movies shot okay. uh, First Cow, Certain Women, uh, Meek's Cutoff. He also uh, shot mid 90s, which I was very impressed because oh, the yeah. style yeah. of filmmaking made it really feel like it was something from the 90s. Okay. So, what's your uh, general feeling on Todd Haynes? I had to look after this and look back at his filmography. And, you know, he's never, like, wowed me that much. Now, the one, my favorite film of his, uh, and I I didn't write it down. I'm going to blank on me. But it's the one with, uh, it's Far From Heaven with Julian Moore. Yes, the uh, Douglas Sirk movie. Yeah. Now, it's interesting. Everybody says, you know, oh, that was his take on uh, Douglas Sirk. And and that's fair. But here's an interesting thing. This film, a lot of critics have recognized that there's a little bit of camp to it. Right. Uh, It may be kind of funny. Uh, My wife and I kind of enjoyed it, and we did find it a little amusing. But what what no critic has put their finger on, and I think that it just shows you the level of depth of some of these younger critics as far as their filmmaking goes, there is a sort of Easter egg, a hint in the film that I didn't pick up on until the end, and it made so much sense for what I was experiencing in the movie. There's this piano motif that's throughout and it's a little extreme like it, it feels like almost a little out of place okay and it, and it kind of ratchets up sort of the melodrama of the movie and it sounded familiar but yet i thought oh this must be an original score well pretty quickly as the credits come up at the end it said that the music is actually a piece from michael legrand the French composer who I loved. Oh, right, right, right. And he it's from this film, The Go-Between. And that's when it all oh, made sense to me. It all comes together. Because The Go-Between was directed by Joseph Losey. Right. And a couple years ago, we did a whole thing on Joseph Losey. We watched a lot of his films. Yeah. And his sort of weird level of melodrama and camp is different from Douglas Sirk. But- 
that's the that's the filmmaker that Tom Haynes is riffing on with May December. And so does it have a similar kind of, in terms of the cinematography, like Glossy is very deliberate framing and if there is movement, incredibly deliberate. That's what was really striking. There was a lot of imagery, um, camera movements with a zoom camera. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And uh, a lot of very intricate frame shots in mirrors. Which Joseph Losey did. did love to do without yeah the servant is filled with that yeah so it's got uh, like several Joseph Losey movies that it's riffing on and I think that's very clever it elevates it because I don't yeah. think a lot of people they might recognize the <laughs> camp aspect but they don't recognize nobody, the filmmaker nobody's gonna get that yeah nobody's but but I did it. and it's because we've been doing the research by doing the show so. Well, that's fantastic. So that makes me want to see it. So I was just thinking my favorite Todd Haynes movie is probably Safe. I have to rewatch it. When I first watched Safe, I did not like it. Oh, interesting. Okay. But there is one moment that I loved in that film. And yeah. I've never forgotten. And that's her, uh, Julianne Moore's poor husband who's been dealing with her. And, yeah. you know, and he's just about at the end of the ropes. And she's in one of those sort of weird sort of cult-like support yes. groups. And- I forget what they do, but it it un, it unsettles him so much that he's like, "What the hell is going on here?" <laughs> and that look on his face is so priceless. Um, this movie's pretty good. This is, I think, one of his better films. Now, one of my favorite things of Todd Haynes is he did a several episode miniseries on HBO, a, a more faithful adaptation of Mildred Pierce. Oh, I never saw that. I remember. It is unbelievable. Okay, interest. Yeah, okay. I want to check that out. He's an he's just he's an interesting filmmaker. He's always kind of been able to continue doing his own thing. Yeah, and he'll just wait. He you know it's not like he's like popping out projects left and right. He waits till he can no. get to do what ones he wants to do. And so this film also because it's based on that Mary Kay Letourneau case with the school teacher. Oh, okay. Yeah. And again, it's not like, oh, adapted and based on true events. No, he just is inspiration. Right, right. But it had a feel to it and a little bit on that camp style of To Die For, which was also based on a real case. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, you know, Natalie Portman, Julia Moore are fine. I would say that the best performance in the movie is Julia Moore's very, very young husband, um, which is played by Charles Melton. This guy's getting a lot of acclaim. And he is yeah, I don't know him. very good in the movie. I think it's the kind of thing that, you know, from this point on, people will know who he is. So that's uh, maybe, a, is it on Netflix? Would it's you, a Netflix you movie, say? yeah. Okay, it's a Netflix movie, so that's something people can watch this holiday season. It's uh, <laughs> yeah. it, 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 it is it a big downer? Um, I mean, the subject matter is about is about uh, you know. Look, in short, Natalie Portman is a famous actress who has come on the heels of acting in an independent film version of this supposed real case. She wants to understand the character to play her as a real person and not sensationalize. So right. she kind of camps in with Julian Moore and her husband, Charles Melton, so she can get in the essence of Julian Moore. And as the movie goes on, 
you just you find out that Natalie Portman's a little unhinged herself. <laughs> well, it sounds like a great setup. I think it's it, it's definitely a great movie. I don't know where it fits in my top ten for the year, but uh, okay. again, there's a lot to enjoy. I don't know the the very end of the movie. It kind of has one of those like classic independent film endings where oh i knew it wasn't going to end very great and it didn't <laughs> but you okay. know but i mean I, I i do recommend it but here's what i thought was interesting and if you had seen it it would have been fun to play on this is there's another film that just made itself uh available on streaming we've both seen it and it has a similar theme where you have an older person mm. and a younger uh person yeah. And that dynamic of sort of grooming and maybe inappropriateness. And that is Sofia Coppola's latest film, Priscilla, based on uh, Elvis and Me by Priscilla Presley, her book that came out, I think, in the 80s. And so you've seen it and I've seen it, correct? Yeah. Did you Have you read the book? I have not. Have you? No, no, no. I was just curious. Oh, no, no. I have not read it. Because I realized I didn't really know that much about the true story here. Like, I had seen Elvis movies, uh, you know, like the Kurt Russell biopic, say, right? And Priscilla's part of it, but kind of a minor part of most of these Elvis movies. Uh, and so I didn't really, and so I don't know how, uh, accurate this movie is or how much of a fantasy it is about this i don't know what their actual relationship was like and so i it, for me it's kind of a blind experience i don't really know yeah I, I don't know how true to life the movie is but it is based on her book so i'm assuming it's kind of real and it's a story that i didn't really know well okay i'll answer, let me answer a couple questions for you i'm a little bit more on the elvis thing you didn't see the most you didn't see that one from a couple of years ago right no i didn't see that one so yeah that's that's why i'm asking you to fill this in for me so what's interesting is most of these Elvis biopics, etc. They're all like a paint by numbers, right? Have to yeah. give you the highlights. And everything I think I've seen previous that involved his relationship with Priscilla Presley, it kind of quickly like, oh, there's a meeting, you know, that he met her in West Germany right. when he was stationed there, and that her father or her stepfather was um, in the military. And then pretty quickly, like, it seems like in most of these movies, suddenly they're married and then, you know, eventually yeah. she can't take it and she gets divorced. That's about all you get. And yeah. this one is a little bit more focused on who is this person? Who is this Priscilla? Yeah. What's interesting is, well, the fact is that when she meets Elvis, she's 14. She's in ninth grade. How old is she when she divorces her? She's 28. So what I found fascinating is this movie encapsulates her entire relationship from meeting and divorcing Elvis, but that's, for him, it's 14 years. For her, it's half her life. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 she begins the story as a child, right? And it, it, it isn't until 14 years later that she actually kind of grows up. Yeah, now obviously the actor who is played by an actor, Kaylee Spanny, uh, she's like in her early 20s. She's not a teenager. Right. But the fascinating thing when you meet her character, 
And this is, I think, where Sofia Coppola is always very successful when she's able to capture something about girls and their adolescence and yeah. their innocence and what it's like to be in the mind of a 14-year-old girl in a way that no male director could ever do. Absolutely. Well, the way the crush is expressed by the actor and the shots chosen, it's not a giggly teenage crush, right? It's uh, She plays it much more internally, but you can totally empathize with it and understand this character. And I think that a lesser director would have made her more giggly. I think a lot of filmmakers would want to shy away that the, 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 you know, the truth was there was a 10 year age difference and mm -hmm. forget the 10 year age difference is that it was, she was 14 and he's yeah. 24 and she leans into this so heavily because you see not somebody that like looks older than her age, which is that old lie. Well, I thought she looked older to me. No, she looks like a young kid and as a parent it's like kind of horrifying yes and even though that the 50s and 60s may have been different times she makes sure that you know that this is just a young girl times may have been different but still the parents are saying things like shouldn't he be with women his own age yeah and you know there's some interesting again this movie has a lot of interesting things to dive into so think about this 1959 you're a 14 year old girl yeah. You're away from home, you're in West Germany, and somebody comes in and says, Hey, would you like to meet Elvis? Think about what that yeah. your brain at 14, this is like the person that you worship. Yeah, absolutely. And but again, this is she doesn't get silly about it. No, that's another interesting choice um in the film is how she goes about trying to be mature about meeting him and such. <laughs> Absolutely. And also this guy who plays Elvis. Jacob Elordi. At first I was like, yeah, I'm not quite sure. And then I realized that as in every Elvis performance, you just have to give up and accept that this is Elvis, right? Yes. Because he's such a well-known character. He's really unmistakable. And no performance has really been totally accurate in my opinion. Except for the one that you didn't watch. Really, you think that one's that good? It's 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 really good. Um, after a while, you really do kind of forget that you're not watching. Uh, that you're you think you're watching Elvis. Okay. The movie is is not well made. I didn't think, but right. uh, and I'm already forgetting that actor's name. Uh, Austin Butler. Yeah, Austin Butler really was interesting when the obnoxious director there right would let him act. Would let him actually be a character <laughs> and explore it. Now, you know the problem with Elvis is. He is an enigma. No yeah. film can really capture because the guy was fed uppers and downers from such a young yeah. age. I don't feel like you ever really get to know who a real Elvis is. So I think that's always a challenge in a movie. Yeah. For me, even though like when she's little, the actor Kaylee Spaney is great, is A, she doesn't really look like Priscilla Presley if you look at photos. Yeah. Yeah, not really. The problem with Jacob Elordi, while sometimes he sort of resembled Elvis and he sounded like him, and I think yeah. he gave an interesting performance, Jacob Elordi is six foot five. 
Yes. Elvis was six <laughs> foot one. Okay. That's a little bit yeah. different. But Kaylee Spanny is five foot one versus yes. Priscilla Presley, who was five six. And he just looks so much taller than her that it kind of throws me for a while. So it it threw me a little bit, but I eventually decided to let that go because there were enough other things going on in the movie that I like that I'm willing to, <laughs> um, especially since visually that just emphasized her childlike nature. Well, that's where it worked. I mean, it did. Yeah. And I thought the first 30 minutes of the movie were like a smash on like, hey, I might be in for like a mini masterpiece here. How yeah. come this isn't getting more recognition? Then the rest of the film it just it slows down for me and by the end of it it's kind of like oh is the sofia coppola movie where uh, except for maybe lost in translation the last third of her movies just don't really pan out <laughs> yeah it didn't well and there i mean the part of the problem is it's based on a true story right so where does it really go you know what i found fascinating about the movie is that large portions of it take place in their bedroom Yes. Like, I, I don't know how many minutes of screen time, but it's a lot take place in that room. And there's something, you know, there, there's uh, the other movies that take place <laughs> that are like that are, are drug movies, right? And so, in a way, this is kind of a drugged out second and third act um, that she sort of pulls herself out of that fog eventually by taking her karate class, which was, you know, kind of lame. Uh, that that's her finding herself as taking a karate class. Like I, I felt like there was an opportunity there for the film to go deeper in the, it, the third act could have been about her discovering herself and finding out who she is as an adult. And that all happens in about five or 10 minutes of screen time. I think that's another movie like that. She, she does until she escapes him. Um, and that's what I, again, even though I didn't know necessarily enjoy that ride, it's still fascinating. Yeah. It really delves into this notion of him being this mega celebrity. And he wanted playthings. He wanted like things yes. available to him when he wanted him. And she was a person when you want to really have an un understanding of what what it says when does somebody have agency or not he did not want her to have any agency yes and she but she continually makes she's confronted with decisions to make about whether she wants to continue to compromise but i think it's also hard is that you're when you're in when you're in that circle of like uber fame of elvis yeah i think it's an addictive drug too where he wanted her, even when he was like wanting all these other women on set and stuff, he still came back. And as long as she was somebody he wanted, I think that was desirable to her. Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, she, there's a line where she comes right in, out and says, I want to be desired. But, you know, one, one thing I found fascinating is, yeah, you, you mentioned the playthings, but it's like he keeps her in a dollhouse. And there's, there's a couple, there's a shot where you see her sort of through the window, but she's really not supposed to leave Graceland or have anyone over. She's supposed to just stay in this little dollhouse and wait for him all the time. And that is a movie I hadn't seen before, whether it's, whether it's Elvis or not, this idea of, you know, keeping this child in a, in a dollhouse as your pet. Uh, and and what a strange life that is for her growing up 
uh, and to not and and to be married to Elvis and not take place in, and not take part in the celebrity life at all, but to be this it, it, basically in his most private moments, he's with her. Well, because that would wreck the image. Like this, there, was, there was this image that he had as a sex symbol, so he could have these little onset dalliances that could get reported about, but she was somebody that they wanted to keep behind the scenes. Exactly. Yeah. And out. Yeah. So that it wasn't, so that she wasn't tainted by the public eye somehow. Well, there was also this thing you asked earlier though. I have an answer to that is that, you know, the parents, like they, they were, right. they were worried and concerned, but then they went along with it. And I feel like it's kind of like these parents who let their little kids go with Michael Jackson. I had exactly the same. The thought. celebrity yeah. is so strong that you are you are seduced as well, and you get this yeah. feeling like, well, this this super powerful celebrity wants to spend time with my daughter. How could I say no? <laughs> well, yeah, and he's super polite about it. You know, I also I don't know if this is true or not, but in the movie, he basically refuses to have sex with her until they're married. And who knows? That might have been true only because Elvis would have been very aware of what happened to Jerry Lee Lewis's career. I thought it was interesting that when they first meet, he's playing Great Balls of Fire. Whether or not he had sex with her in real life before she was of age, it's absolutely you see all of the ways that he's groomed, including how she got introduced. I don't know whether that couple were just didn't even realize it, but they kind of are like acting as these people. They're that, kind of matchmaking. Yeah. And maybe to appease him, like, oh, here's a young girl from, from back in the States. Elvis will like that. And by, by, you know, circuses, then he'll like us because we've brought her to him. Yeah. This whole seduction, whether or not they had, and there was other things they could do, he says. Um, right. But, you know, it's inappropriate <laughs> in a major way. And this movie, I don't think, shies away from it. But it also, it does say in a very strange way, just like this May, December, that yes, inappropriate relationship, but it's unmistakable that there was an attraction between the two. Some sort of love, you know, in, in whatever sort of complex form that takes, which I, I think it is complex form in this movie. But yeah, there's love there. And, you know, I, <laughs> I was glad I didn't watch this movie with my teenage daughter. She would have been like, this Elvis is is a horrific. <laughs> yes, she would have, and she would have done that through the entire movie and interrupted it for me because <laughs> for <laughs> because for me I can go okay I I understand that this is creepy and weird and wrong, uh, but now I can watch the movie, right? Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> but I don't think the movie it does portray this love and intimacy between them. But it doesn't necessarily say this is okay. I mean, it shows him as being kind of abusive emotionally and a difficult person to deal with and kind of a jerk to her at times. So I don't think it lets the grooming thing off the hook or celebrates it in any way. Well, you know, they didn't get into this in the movie. However, you know, and again, if you know the history and if you saw the last film that was about Elvis there, yeah. Elvis, uh, Baz Luhrmann's there, it's interesting a lot of the ways that he abused Priscilla yeah. and kept her almost in a cage is the way Elvis himself was being treated by the colonel. Right. Oh, that's fascinating. That that I thought was a really interesting level because there's this thing where, and I forget the moment where Priscilla doesn't 
oh yeah, Priscilla doesn't want him to be doing all those like uh, weird religious sort of cult-like activities. Yeah, he's reading all these occult books and getting into all sorts of new age kind of philosophies and stuff, and she is frustrated with him. He goes back to reading, and then the next scene, he's on the phone with the colonel. Yeah, and so what happened is this thing was probably bigger than just like her being like, what the hell's going on with Elvis? But if, if the colonel felt these things were impacting Elvis's yeah. image and his ability, he could tell Elvis to stop. And so he controlled Elvis and Elvis needed someone to control and he was controlling Priscilla. Well, and I don't know, uh, I'm just assuming now that the colonel uh, picked out some of the outfits for Elvis and told him what to wear. See, you really should see that Elvis movie. Um, it's not a great performance by Tom Hanks. Right. But you understand, because I knew a lot from watching some in-depth documentaries about Elvis, yeah. but you see, basically the colonel was this weird con man. He pretended like he was American and he was a guy that kind of like, where's he from? Well, he was from the Netherlands and he didn't have like a legal passport and he was in America illegally and it was never found out. But it was the reasons because he wanted such control over Elvis because he was so afraid that Elvis would like wise up and leave him that he kept implied with, with, uh, Doctors who would give him drugs. Wow. And Elvis was never allowed to perform internationally. And the reason was because he couldn't go internationally, but Elvis didn't know that. Oh, wow. I didn't know that Elvis. Yeah. Okay. This is fascinating. He booked him in Vegas because he was a massive gambler and he owed the mafia all sorts of money. So he kept on signing Elvis to all these contracts to play because they would basically allow him to gamble for free. And I'm talking the colonel. <laughs> he ruined Elvis' oh, yeah. life. He couldn't make the movies he wanted to make because the colonel would say no. And this all ties into something that's very fascinating. And I wouldn't have picked up on this if I hadn't just heard this uh, in the last few weeks on the Howard Stern show. Howard Stern had Dolly Parton on. You listened to Howard Stern? Yeah. He does amazing interviews. So Dolly Parton was on, had a fascinating interview with him. Now, she there's a song of hers that plays at the end of the movie i will always love you yeah right which is yep. of course the big hit that whitney houston had yeah in the bodyguard but it's dolly parton's song yeah and she actually did a version of it in um the movie version of best little whorehouse in texas this film plays like the a really early version of the song but what you may not know unless you heard the interview with howard stern and obviously, Sofia Coppola knew this, so it's an Easter egg. Dolly Parton wrote that with the intention of Elvis to sing it. Oh, wow. And they were and they called and said they wanted the song. However, the colonel demanded of all these songwriters that they got the publishing rights. Right. And Dolly Parton's like, whoa, sorry. And mind you, Dolly Parton was not a big thing at the time right. to, this, to, to this level. And she said, oh, I don't give away my publishing rights. She's like, well, we can't use the song. So, <laughs> Yeah, well, good thing she held on to him because she certainly made bank off Whitney Houston. She made huge money. And that they talked about that in this interview, too, of just like how she didn't even know they were actually, she heard that they were interested in using it. She didn't know. And then it suddenly came on the radio. She had to pull over her car because she was so blown away by the performance. <laughs> <laughs> right and uh yeah she made a lot of money off of that song because it was a monster smash but it was supposed to be elvis a signature song for him <laughs> and i thought that was wow. brilliant that that was used and it's just yeah. those little details that i don't think i would have known had i not just heard that interview so i think 
based on our conversation here, I think I liked this movie more than you did. You probably did, but I also think it was fascinating. I, I just I don't find it. It was it just dragged on for me a little bit. It didn't drag on for me. I just like Sofia Coppola's handling of the movie because she's it's very distinctual she has an eye for things and she focuses on things i heard a review that i read talk about how this movie may feel like surface level but that's her thing she like likes to examine the surface in a way that other filmmakers wouldn't just things like the props and set design and costumes and the way that uh, Coppola focuses on little details like hair curlers or nails being painted. No, I agree with you. I think those are those are very fascinating details that are very purpose. It's not like, oh, second unit shot some stuff. Like this is all part of the way she sees the character. Absolutely. And it builds the character in less obvious ways than than you would have in your typical musical biopic. Anyhow, I, I just felt like this was a movie that I hadn't seen this kind of plot before. She's a fascinating character who doesn't really have agency. And how do you have a main character who doesn't really have agency until the third act? You know, she, she does have decisions, so there is some plot going on there. But to me, it's a fascinating character portrait. And the performances are great. And I would recommend this movie. Yeah, I mean, I definitely recommend it, especially for people who are fans of Elvis. Um, another shout out, the cinematography by uh, Philippe Lesord. He's been nominated for an Oscar before for shooting The Grandmaster. He also shot Coppola's The Beguiled and On the Rocks. This is the first time he personally is working in uh, digital and it's really one of the better looking digital films. I mean, it has a film-like look to it. There's so many layers to the images. Digital often looks flat, but he got some depth here. And not just like depth of field, but uh, through lighting, layers of lighting. Yeah, there's a softness, but there's a richness. Like, it, it, it's just, it feels a little bit like a dream. Yes. Which is great because a lot of times with these biopics that are shot on uh, digital, that sharp harshness of the digital yeah. image, it makes it feel like, oh, they're putting on sets and costumes so it kind of looks yeah. like the 60s. This had a little bit more realistic, and I don't know whether they really uh, shot at Graceland or not, but it certainly looked like they may have shot inside Graceland. Yeah, I, I was wondering that too, because it certainly is perfectly realized on film. But, I mean, it's almost a bottle movie for the second act. Another thing I didn't like about the film, this is just me personally, but, you know, he had his little entourage and they were always there. And I felt like those people serve nothing but to show up as an entourage. And after a while, like, you kind of was like, man, you see this and that actor all the time, but around him, can't you give them some lines or something? Like, they just, <laughs> it, it, it just didn't. That part bothered me. Again, I, th- that's a nitpick, but... <laughs> I, it's a nitpick, but I but I actually liked that because it made her so separate from them. And, and so, like, giving them a line would make them into characters in the movie, and they weren't characters in her life other than this kind of mob of people that was around him. So, I, anyhow, I, I kind of liked that, that, it, that she had no part of that part of his life outside of this 
gang of guys. Also, uh, Elvis's dad in the movie, he, he Elvis's dad was notoriously a drunk and a creep, but his father yeah. is a real creepy. Remember when she's just talking <laughs> to the girls in the office and he's like, <laughs> get out of here. You don't, you're disturbing them from their work. Here's what's funny though, is that like scene after scene, we keep bringing up things from this movie there. This is a pretty, uh, uh, rich movie in terms of, uh, drama and performance. And <laughs> well, that's why I thought it was a good one to pick is that there really was a lot to chew on in this film. So we've talked about two movies and a couple of years ago we did, or maybe the very first season, <laughs> we did a Christmas episode. We talked about a lot of Christmas yeah. movies and you talked about some of your alternative films that you like mm-hmm. for Christmas, things like um, Full Metal Jacket yep. um, and also uh, Eyes Wide Shut. Eyes Wide Shut is really a Christmas classic. <laughs> yes. Well, you know what? It's actually been playing in a lot of retro houses lately, I've noticed, um, throughout the country. Uh, people are doing screenings of Eyes Wide Shut. So, so maybe people are catching up with you on that. But an, okay, good. An all, I'm, you know, I'm always keeping my eyes open for an alt-Christmas classic. And uh, sure. I was shocked that Criterion Channel uh, offered one. It's, it's funny. They just did a Blu-ray release of this. Uh, for December, and so they're also showing it uh, on their channel. And I was looking for something to watch the other day, and I was reading the descriptions of certain films. They had something that was like noir for Christmas or something. So okay, so it was part of a collection. Yeah, and I mean, I don't, I don't think, I think it just happened to be like, oh, these are noir films that somehow, some way, the setting is Christmas or, or, <laughs> right, or whatever. Right. But <laughs> there's some Christmas involved. Right? I, I read this description in this movie called Blast of Silence, and it was really short. It was only like an hour and twenty minutes. So I said, I'm going to pop this thing on, and. Essentially, in a nutshell, there's a, a hitman from Cincinnati, Frankie Bono, and he's in town, New York City, around Christmas, which he feels is a good place and time to kind of blend in with with just because there's all, all the tourists and everything. Well, and he's on assignment. He's been given an assignment to kill somebody, and he's sort of spending his time following the guy, learning about him, and enjoying enjoying christmas yeah enjoying christmas in new york even though he hates christmas it seems like um (laughs) and and it's a low it's a low level hitman that he is uh supposed to wipe out and he's supposed to be really good yeah and what i thought was interesting is this was a great contrast to another film that we just talked about in the last episode the killer yes and partly because in the killer while we don't hear uh, Fassbender there, Michael Fassbender, talk a lot. He narrates the entire movie. And this movie is also narrated, yeah. It's narrated by a guy who sounds like the lead guy, but it's not. It's this right. famous actor, Lionel Stander, um, who had been blacklisted uh, for communist uh, sympathies. Okay. And he uh, later on, people would know him because he was like the butler guy from Heart to Heart. And he's a guy uh, who says, when they met, it was murder. And he had this great, very thick <laughs> yeah, New York-y yeah. accent. And he talks about this hitman. And he, he narrates almost like through the entire movie. But the narration, yeah. which I'm assuming a lot of that narration is where Waldo Salt came in in the script writing. No, actually, I think... Because I know that Waldo Sartre was part, wasn't the full script writer, the director. Also. Well, I know that one one writer did all the voiceover and another writer did the movie. Okay. Because I know the film was made, by, it, was, it was starred and partly written and it was directed by this guy, Alan Byron. And he went on to like a good, pretty good TV directing career in Hollywood. 
okay. that he got off of this. Didn't really make many features after this one. This came out in 1961, but this film has a vibe to it, an energy, and just an intrigue that I don't come across that often. And I just fascinated through this whole like hour and 20 minutes. One thing I really liked about it is, okay, 1961, so it takes place right around then, right? And so it's almost at the end of the noir era and the beginning of the beat hippie era. Yeah. Right? And so it it has this jazz soundtrack, which is different than you would usually get in a noir film. He hangs out with these hipsters. And they're different than what you would usually get in a noir film. So it it has like a slightly different cultural background than you would expect from noir hitman movie. And you're absolutely right about comparing it to Fincher's The Killer because uh, this movie's good and that one isn't. <laughs> yeah. Well. <laughs> But this movie, as I want, you know, it's like I was kind of mixed on the killer. And then watching this, I it made me realize over and over again how bad the killer is. Well, that's what I instantly I was like, this is a great counterpoint to the killer. Yes. Because it is the same thing. It's like a guy on a job. And even just in terms of how the story is structured, the killer starts with him doing the job. And this is all build up to the job. And I was expecting... I was expecting something a little bit different structurally, but it's sort of about how he gets uh, sidetracked on his way to the, you know, he sort of takes a different uh, shortcut on the way to work one day and meets some different people and it kind of changes him a little bit. And so he's not quite himself by the end of the movie when he goes to do the job but you're right absolutely there, this movie has energy it's jazzy it's uh it, it has attitude uh the filmmaking is really interesting and kind of amateurish at times and other times like masterful i mean first of all i don't know whether scorsese ever saw this movie and found it but it, it has a feel a little bit like early scorsese yeah and there is this guy an actor named Larry Tucker, who also was a writer, um, was nominated for an Oscar for writing Bob, Carol, Ted, and Alice. Oh, yeah. But he plays this fascinating character in the movie called Big Ralph. And yes. he's the guy that the that the main hitman, Frankie Bono, has to get a gun from. Yes. And this character is fascinating that he exists on film. <laughs> Absolutely, he is. He, yeah, he's not not what again not what you would expect from a noir film. You know, when he goes over to his uh, apartment to get the gun, I was like, "What is this guy? <laughs> Where did this guy come from?" He's he's like raising rats and he's in this little tiny apartment hole and then yeah and then the plot goes where it goes with the two of them but which by the way that that sort of the 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 scene that kind of finishes where that goes with those two is amazing. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. And it's just, you know, there's some dialogue in the film that examines, the narration examines what this guy's thoughts are of the people he has to encounter, like the guy who is giving him the assignment and just his disdain and how he recognizes that those people hate him even more than he hates them. And I, I just, I was so wrapped up. Because he symbolizes death. When they look at him, all they see is death. Yeah, because it's almost like a guilt thing. They know that that they're paying this guy to rub out somebody. <laughs> Yeah, and one the other thing with the voiceover is that it's in second person. Yeah, at first I didn't realize that. 
And then I realized, I'm like, wait a minute, this isn't the, this is the, somebody commenting on him. Exactly. And it, it, and it, what it, if it is him, he's talking to himself in second person and it creates this weird kind of distant split character because there's a ton of voiceover in this movie. I, I kept thinking, what would this be like without the voiceover? I did the same thing in The Killer. I think The Killer would have been good without the voiceover. I think this would be worse without the voiceover. So it may have been a necessity because it was like, I got to find a way to make this impactful, but it really works in this movie. And I just get excited when there's a film that is from 1961 that until the moment that I came across it and said, oh, I'll watch this. I had never heard of it. Never in a million years heard the name, anything about it. So it's a complete discovery for me. And I'm so happy I saw it. And then it turns out to be a minor masterpiece. There's there's some great uh, documentaries about it on Criterion Channel you can watch from the director. Years later, he gets an opportunity to talk about the influence that this movie's had and how he's thrilled that it kind of got a second life, that people are discovering it. And he goes back to all the haunts from the movie, whether they oh, exist cool. anymore or they're just, you know, boarded up stuff. And he tells all of these stories and why they're included in the movie and how he made the film. And he set the film at Christmas time because he knew with his low budget that it would give an extra element of atmosphere, almost like, you know, set direct decoration and right. stuff to have like real shots of like Christmas in New York. And that's fascinating to see as well. There's a few shots that are, um, sort of side tracking shots of him walking down the sidewalk. Clearly they have the camera in a vehicle or on a bike or something. Right. But you can tell that these shots, uh, they didn't close down the streets for any of the shots in this movie. No, no. He talks about that too. At the Apollo, they got into some trouble. Like cops, cops thought that they were like out there filming them, the cops to make sure that they weren't causing any trouble for the people who lived up in Harlem. And they didn't believe him that they were just making a movie. (laughs) <laughs> yeah because he had no permits he had no money for you know he didn't oh, know, yeah, he yeah. Knew nothing about that so yeah everything is shot like real guerrilla style but it pays off because you get stuff that you don't get in studio movies from the era that are done on backlots right you you get so much atmosphere and you know they don't have to it, the people in the background are not costumed they're just they're just actually people walking down the street and so it gives it a very different feel than something where everything is art designed yeah it's kind of like a uh, new york neo realist noir it is yeah it is neo realist actually <laughs> and he also got in well not in trouble but when he first started to show the film at festivals and things in the early 60s people accused him of ripping off Godard. And he's like, I, I, I hadn't even seen <laughs> Breathless un- until afterwards when they started saying that. I'm like, I better go see the movie that they think I'm ripping off. But he understood why there was because they shot things in a similar way. Because they shot things. Yeah, it also stuff. reminds me of uh, Truffaut's Shoot the Piano Player. Interesting. Okay, so we don't have, you know, all the time in the world and we still have to give each other our gifts. Um, yeah. So, you know, on that vein, to finish out the program, basically... It's hard. I've seen a lot more, you know, more recent films than you are. Or anytime you tell me to see something, unlike you, I actually see the film. Uh, so it's hard for you to find a movie. But the gift was that, like, I was to see a movie that you've been talking about. Yeah. And then vice versa, you would see if something that you hadn't seen. And I said, you should try to see something from the BFI 250 list. 
Exactly. And so that was what we did. So I saw something that you had recommended I should watch, and you saw something that I recommended you should watch. Yeah, and I should be clear, I wasn't saying that what I recommended wasn't, hey, this is the greatest movie ever, you should check it out. No, because I've already seen it, if it's the case. (laughs) Usually I'm like, oh, it's great, I'll go watch it. (laughs) Yeah, Um, I I would have pressed you to watch it earlier if that were the case, but there were some other reasons that I thought it was worth looking at. And then, yeah, I picked a movie off the BFI 250 that had been high on my watch list before the 250 even came around. And... So I, uh, and I, I just wanted to see it for a while and finally got around to it. So that film that I saw was The Ascent. And that's from what, 75 or 76, I think? Yeah, 75, it was somewhere around there. And it, it, what's the director's name? Sharapiko? <sighs> is, she Czech, is it she Czechoslovakian or Hungarian or? Uh, I, I, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, unfortunately, I, I didn't know you which movie and you told me right before we started taping, yeah. but I didn't know. So I couldn't get the, you know, the details written down in advance but uh it's it's a famous eastern Bloc film yeah it's a soviet film about world war ii and uh about what was happening on the eastern front with partisans and nazis and i mean this is real really out on the edge of the i mean this is not the front this this is the boonies you know it's this little village that's been taken over by nazis and these uh two soldiers sort of end up there and on their on their way to find some food for their squadron and they get captured by the nazis and interrogated and so on and so forth and but this film is, uh, I, I would say it's an absolute masterpiece. On the level of filmmaking, there, there's this moment near the end, there's a uh, execution at the end, and uh, the way it's filmed is brilliant, but then there's this shot of the guy who basically ordered the execution. And it's a shot, so he's, you assume he's looking at uh, at the executed people, they're not in the frame and it's just a shot of him looking and she holds this shot for i didn't time it but it's got to be at least two solid minutes of just a shot of this guy's face looking at this and you see this very subtle transition into a range of different emotions maybe it's guilt maybe it's even pleasure at times uh and it, uh, it to me it was just okay this takes a director of certain vision to just hold a shot on somebody's face this long and to have that level of intent behind every shot in the film is fantastic and then of course it, you know it's a story that to some extent i feel like <laughs> i've seen before right but i think because it's been done a lot since then but it's also kind of a typical existentialist type of question of you know the the kubrick film um paths of glory is similar right with some soldiers captured waiting to be executed and sort of those questions about life and death and morality and what you will do to survive and what you'll sacrifice and so it really gets into all those questions and anyhow i think it's a masterpiece great film recommend it again now it's been many months since i first saw it um and I, I it was actually one of the last not the last but it was in the last batch that i needed to I think complete the 100 before I got into the 250. Right. And I was like, I don't know what, why I was taking, you know, it just happened to be that, you know, there's always got to be a first and there's always going to sure. be a last. Yeah. 
some of these films, as you know, it took me a while to get through some of these movies. <laughs> yeah, but when yeah. I got to that one, I mean, I, I, I couldn't, couldn't stop watching it. It was so good. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like there's a lot of long takes in this film too, right? Yes, there are. Yeah. I mean, you described one of them, but the, yeah. the, the thing is, the, it's the film composition, the directing of this movie yes. is sensational. It is absolutely like, you know, I, I've had a lot of uh, critiques about the BFI list, and this one definitely deserves to be on it. it it's, a, it's, yeah. it's amazing. And the thing is that she, this was sort of the movie that put her on the map, and just a couple of years later, she died in a car crash. Yes, and this is considered a great tragedy for cinema because yeah. she was one of the great, oh, so it was 77, Larissa Shapitko. Mm, yes. I think she has another movie that's supposed to be really good, but... She does. I can't remember what it's called. But she's considered, just because of these few films, uh, You and Me, I think, is the other one that she... Get, but just because of these few movies, she is considered one of the great female directors. Yeah, it's a, it's a loss for cinema that uh, her career was cut short. Yeah. And this film, if you haven't seen it, you should look for it. I believe it's on Criterion. The Ascent. It, it's it's an amazing film. Yeah. And, you know, it, it is about World War II. It's a little bit about fascism. It's not a war film. But it's not a war film, right. It, that's yeah. secondary, I think. It's really a human story, and it really gets into life and death. What is there an afterlife? And the yeah. idea about dying for a cause and bravery and, you know, those who seem to have no values and will do anything to... Uh, you know, to save their life, and then ultimately, that a couple of characters may end up switching sort of their stances when the yeah. chips fall down. Um, and it also just talks about kind of like morality as going through this: the sides that people chose to be on, those who chose to collaborate with the Nazis versus the partisans. Um, that's fascinating in the film too. Well, and it's fascinating to see a Soviet rendition of uh nazis yes and so now if you like this movie teal yeah you're gonna love come and see <laughs> oh i know it, it, that, that was high that almost made it, that almost took the spot from the ascent but i've been wanting to see the ascent for so long that i i, I went in yeah, on that the, why i think you like come and see is that you're gonna like there's a very kubrickian approach to how the film is shot okay. And also, you know, if you if you want to feel if you want to feel in the mood to hate Nazis, this is your film. <laughs> this is your film, man. There's some stuff that you're not going to forget okay. at the end of this movie. Okay. Ultimately, that's an anti-war movie where the protagonist definitely is all excited to join the partisan cause. And by right. the end of the movie, <laughs> I don't think he's seen so much that he'll never be the same again. And you're wondered, and you're right. worried that the actor himself, though they assured that the actor was actually fine, he he's so amazing in the movie that you feel like he's mentally not going to be the same after the film. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, that'll go high on my list. Yeah, those are great companion because again, if you want to see um, World War II and fascism, but from the side of um, the Iron Curtain, yeah, these films are out yeah. there. Give it another one that I uh, saw just recently. Um, I guess it's sort of kind of a pet project of mine in these movies was uh, Carriage to Vienna. Oh, yeah, yeah. I haven't seen that yet. That, so. That's, again, it's another one. And you, you start to realize that these Eastern filmmakers, man, they, mm. uh, you know, and I, maybe the reason why their filmmaking is so 
powerful visually is they had to be so careful because even even when they thought they were being clever, they still got uh, that their film still got condemned or censored or put away for for years because it was deemed not socially acceptable to the, <laughs> to the cause. Um, right. If you, if you frame your shot wrong, you're going to a labor camp for 40 years. Yeah. So, uh, but these films, <laughs> they have to like visually convey things that they can't maybe do with the dialogue. Right. And so that they're hoping to get their message across, which makes them very powerful visually. So I think that The Ascent, Come and See, and Carriage to Vienna, one thing that they all have in common is that the visuals are very powerful. Yeah, let's just throw Tarkovsky into the mix while we're at it. Tarkovsky, I don't think he ever did a um, he didn't a movie about World War II, but yes, same type of thing. Um, the Tarkovsky it's really about imagery and mm-hmm. poetry, um, and I yeah. would say that the the images are more important than say the dialogue in the movies of his. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's it's visual storytelling. Yeah, because like that Andre Rublev, um, I found it was a bit of a slog, but visually right. there's some amazing sequences in it that like I've yeah. never seen in any other movie. I felt that way with Mirror, that there's a few shots where I'm still like, I need to, I mean, the movie is- Like with the ceilings uh, coming down? Yes, yeah, that, and, and then there's this shot that like follows this child into a house and there's curtains blowing. And like it goes from outside to inside, but there's still enough light. And, and it's it's just one of those things where it's like, it, here is a beautifully executed and composed uh, camera movement and shot that it seems like it took the kind of care and attention that I don't see in movies that often these days. Yeah. Well, except we saw a little bit of that in Priscilla, um, you know, care and attention. Oh, no, we definitely did. Yeah. So, and that's usually the case in the in the great movies that you get it. Like every yeah. year, maybe a handful that those are the ones. And the reason we like them is because they take care and attention. When I saw Mirror in the past year, because again, it was part of my yeah. BFI quest and it's in there. It's, in, it's high up in the top 100. I had a very interesting experience where I was watching the opening like 10 minutes of the movie. And yeah. It's this guy and he's talking to a psychiatrist and he's sort of like being hypnotized. And yeah, I'm watching this thing and all of a sudden I like blank and I realized like a couple of minutes had gone by and I couldn't even tell you what he was saying. And it was after I shut it off because I couldn't watch the whole thing at that point. I realized yeah. whatever he was doing on film, I, he hypnotized me. I was actually, I was I was hypnotized. That is amazing. By concentrating on the character and listening and focusing yeah. in that he actually performs hypnosis on you in the film. So <laughs> that is amazing. Um, you know, so I mean, a movie that can do that, I guess you got to get some points to that. <laughs> <laughs> get some points. Yeah, definitely get some points for that. Well, I'm glad that you like The Ascent. <laughs> yeah, fantastic movie, masterpiece. Uh, highly recommend it. Should be on the 250 list. On the 100. It it's, d- deserves its spot. I do recall you actually talking about this movie before this BFI nonsense ever came about. So I yeah. do know that it had been long time on yours. And I was actually surprised that I ended up seeing it before you. Yeah, I was too, actually, because I kept thinking I was going to see it. Because I'd read, I, I'd read some article about, you know, great directors that had only done a few films. And she came up on it. Yep. That's where I initially heard of the film. So you again, it's not like you had a high recommendation or anything, but I really it did. was on my list to see this year. And it's this movie by a guy named Daniel um, Goldhaber, and it's called How to Blow Up a Pipeline. 
Yes. And it's pretty much as as the title suggests, it pretty much is just a procedural of people uh, blowing up a pipeline. Yeah, they're planning and then you kind of occasionally you'll go back in time and they'll, you know, put on the screen. Oh, here are these characters and you get their backstory. So you kind of understand a, why do they want to blow up a pipeline yeah. or B what's their story? And, you know, um, you know, it, it's, it's never boring. Uh, I mean, I didn't love the movie, but I, I thought it was interesting and I, I like some of the performances yeah. in it. Um, and it is shot also on 16 millimeter. Um, so it gives it a sort of that gritty documentary look. And my wife came home. I was sitting there watching it and there was only 25 minutes left and she sat down and an instant was like, what year did this come out? She thought it was like 20 or 30 years <laughs> old. And then she got sucked in and wanting to watch all the stuff that happened in the last 25 minutes. Um, but that's the power of the way the film looks. You do not think of it as a movie that came out now. Which is interesting because it is such a Gen Z movie in a way. It is. And these kids are a little bit idealistic. And I did have a hard, I know this sounds funny, but I actually had a hard time trying to go, Am I supposed to be rooting for them or against them? I don't know if I'm finding that their reasons to blow up the pipeline are, are they sound a little bit just more like they think that they're going to do something great, but that uh, I feel like there's going to be very little impact of doing this other than it's going to hurt them. Um, but but I think that's, I, I, I think exactly what you just said, that whole conversation you are having in your head is exactly what the film wants you to do. Okay, we can take action. Uh, you know what? What's the morality of not taking action? Okay, we can just be complicit, or we can take action, but the action's not really going to have any effect and just hurt us. Can we just do nothing and sit here while this happens? And so, I think that's a moral question that a lot of Gen Z is dealing with right now. And when I was reading the reviews for this film, and it did get really good reviews. It was from a lot of those younger reviewers who felt like... Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, who felt like this was... So I think this film speaks to that. You know, you and I, we're old now. So like uh, <laughs> global... And well, no, but it's true. Like, you know, it, like global warming is less of a concern for us than it is for our kids. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a concern. But yeah, you're right. I'll probably squeak by if I'm not in a re-education camp. Um <laughs> <laughs> under the new right. American but my but my point is that like you know if you're Gen Z this is it this is you know this is the rest of your life you're looking at and so I I feel like this movie poses that question to these younger audiences and so I feel like it connects with uh, that audience in a way that it doesn't necessarily connect with me I kind of you know it's not a bad movie I enjoyed it kind of as a procedural thriller I, some of the characters are kind of fun uh, you don't really get to know any of them all that well I wouldn't say there's a lot of like character drama it really is just a procedural some of the reviews said this movie is really making the argument that drastic action needs to be taken and I, mm. I'm more along the lines where you, you're coming from, where I feel like it's asking those questions as opposed to making a statement. But like, I kept on being like, oh, which one of them is going to be the, uh, the informant? Like you just like already right. knew there was yeah. going to be, and I kind of picked who it was going to be. And I was right on that. But then there's some twists. And I have to say that I liked some of the twists at the end. There should be room 
today for these minor little efforts. Yeah. And unfortunately, today's film world, this is the kind of thing that used to show up in Boston and Cambridge at like, you know, the independent theaters for a few weeks. And during my 20s, I would see them all. Yeah. And, you know, now they know there's not a place for them. So I guess it's good that they're on streaming and you could catch very short. It's only an hour and a half. So. And it's entertaining. It's it's not, you know, it's not a dreadful experience. But I saw this quote from Steve Buscemi the other day. Yeah. One of the things he said in this quote, it was longer than this, but he said, there's a difference between independent films and low budget films that are trying to be commercial. Mm. I thought that is absolutely right, that there are a lot of low budget films that are just trying to be like studio romantic comedies. They're just on a low budget, right? And maybe they're a little bit quirkier than you'd get from a studio, but it's basically just a low budget studio movie. And then there's the movies that are really sort of out of the ordinary and have a really distinctive voice and... You know, we know the filmmakers that are in that. And, uh, you know, you could put like, say, Paul Thomas Anderson or Wes Anderson or Tarantino, like in those kind of. Well, those are those like big, big known auteurs. But like this is that what he's talking about. This movie is more on that. This is a very independent film. Like Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It, it, there's, there's no way that this is, movie is trying to be commercial. Whereas, you know, some other so-called independent movies I feel like are trying to be. So I thought that was an interesting distinction from Buscemi. Well, we get a lot of those now on streaming channels. They offer us up a lot of crap that you just can imagine was not quite good enough to be in the movie theaters. That's exactly the stuff I'm talking about. And some of it's even big budget stuff that's not good enough to be in the movie theaters. You know, it is too bad the way things are, like especially where you have digital film Mm -hmm. capabilities and people could go out and make movies that the market to actually showcase these films is very limited now. And it's too bad because those are the movies that at least are trying to do something with ideas. You know, they're coming up with new ideas and, and we lose that. Anyhow, we should probably wrap up. Well, we have, I gotta go. Um, but, uh, yeah, I know. So are you guys still with us? You awake? Um, Hey, this is Jim and Teal. (laughs) And uh, we do stuff we've seen, and we've been doing it, and we're going to keep on doing it. And uh, in the new year, uh, hopefully we can see some stuff. Uh, You know, I think that Poor Things is hitting a a theater near me, when I say near me, an hour away, um, starting this weekend. So I I definitely, uh, over like Christmas week, I want to see that. Uh, I'd like to see that Iron Claw movie. I want to see that. There's suddenly suddenly like 10 movies I want to see, and this always happens this time of year. And then they're not freaking available till february i know and like well that's the, the one that i am the highest on my personal list is zone of interest and yeah. i don't want to see that on streaming i want to see that in the theater so i'm just waiting for it to come to any theater that's like within an hour and a half of me and it just hasn't yet because right now it's only playing in new york and la so yeah, it's not here yet but it 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 theoretically is going wider in the next few weeks. Yeah, so. I mean, it could come, it could be, you could tell me that it's going to be streaming next week, but if it was playing this weekend, I would try to see it at the theater. I got to see this thing in the theater. And there are, there's a few movies like that every year. You know, this is the, uh, this is my scene. I've got a list now of movies I'm going to try to see. Oh, okay. To, to kind of wrap up my year-end thing. Well, you're going you're gonna to send me that list. I do? I you're not going to, you don't pay attention to half the things I text you. <laughs> yeah i'll send you that list and then later you'll be like oh there's a list you sent me it well, well send me that again so i'll tell you what i'm not going to send it to you but i'll send it to you again in a few weeks 
Okay, that sounds great. <laughs> All right, everybody. This is what we bicker okay. about when we're not on the show. Um, <laughs> hey, uh, thank you for, for tuning in, listening, and we hope uh, you have a great uh, rest of your year. And then we'll see you in 2024, the year that democracy may be dead in America. We don't know. <laughs> we'll see. We'll find out. Fine. We'll find out together. <laughs> we'll, we'll do it together. All right. Thanks for listening. Bye, everybody. <laughs>